Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is your regular update for all your tillage news and advice. The last two weeks and the next few weeks will be very busy on all tillage farms. Crops are being planted and growth is increasing, although it's been held back over the last few days with the cold. Nonetheless, there's a large number of agronomic decisions to be taken on all farms in the coming weeks. This week, Chagas held the first in a series of crop agronomy webinars looking at different crops throughout the season. The webinar this month is hosted by Kieran Collins and covers disease control in winter wheat and winter barley, wheat control in spring cereals, and also trace element deficiencies in tillage crops. There are a series of videos from around the country, and this was followed by a questions and answers session by an expert panel. These questions and answers were excellent and are worth listening to again, as there's a lot of brilliant information there which will help you with your agronomy decisions over the next number of weeks. The first question and answer session was on disease control, and Kieran was joined by Dr. Stephen Kilday, a researcher in Oak Park, and Shay Phelan, a tillage specialist in Chagas Oak Park. Kieran first asked Stephen about a scenario where a farmer has a susceptible yellow rust variety, but no yellow rust visible at the moment in the crop, or what the farmer should do now. The first thing is going to be the variety. So look, they have uh, one of those susceptible varieties that he gives a rating of, of four for. So we know that it has a severe weakness for, for yellow rust. Now getting into the crop, um, it itself would have to look at, okay, when was the sowing date? What is the sort of condition of that crop? Um, and, and when were they looking at it? So if they're going out today and they're not seeing any yellow rust, the conditions that are forecast look for today and I suppose to the end of the week are fairly cold at the moment. Um, and that's really going to keep yellow rust in check. Just because you can't see it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a little bit in that crop that could take off if the conditions get right. And I'm thinking that that's a very susceptible variety. It's got another bit to go before it gets to that uh, sort of leaf tree application that would be the typical start of a fungicide program. Um, and for those sort of very susceptible varieties, your, your Bennington, your Diego and, and, and your Torp, um, and I suppose in, in the city or the part of the country, maybe in the Northeast, for example, that would be a case that, look, they will require probably an earlier application, what we call a pre-stem extension or your T0. Um, because, look, we know that if yellow rust gets going there, it will be difficult to get on top of later on the season. It's not that we can't get on top of it, but it makes things more difficult. Um, something like Graham, for example, uh, as Philip says, it's a bit more resistant. Um, if there's nothing in it there, I'd be keeping an eye on it. Look, taking that yellow rust will be kept in check over the next week with the weather and it'll be moving It'll be moving into the stage of, look, if there's no yellow rust when it's at that application time for pre-time stem extension or T0, it may be a case then it'll be all right until until uh, leaf tree application and to be looking at a rust active going into the tank and that sort of uh, component mm. there. The more resistant varieties, I'd be, I'd be fairly happy in terms of if there's no yellow rust there, that they'll be kept in check and, and they probably won't require anything at that at that uh, pre-stem extension or T0. Okay. And Stephen, that, that you mentioned that sort of leaf tree application and you have one of those susceptible varieties, um, you know, what type of product should you be looking at at that leaf tree timing and should you be pri still prioritizing rust or does Septoria take precedence at that stage? It, it, it's, a, it's a difficult one, being honest. And look, our climate is, it's very much a Septoria sort of environment. Um, however, look, when yellow rust, yellow rust is going to be taken away also, and it's it's in those type of varieties, it could cause the bigger issue. Um, in terms of look, if we lose a lot of leaf material, um, from the from now through to I suppose the flag leaf, if there's no room for septoria, it's not going to be a concern, and that's where if the yellow rust is there and it's the one that's taking the leaf, then it needs to be taken care of. 
So then looking into that first uh, sort of uh, leaf tree application, look, when we look at the actives that are going to be available, look, epoxy in, in, in the azole would have been the sort of the, the star for a long time from, from rust control. There's going to be very little about of that at the, at the moment. That is in the use-up period. If you do have it and you do have a susceptible variety, then I wouldn't be holding it. That's where that should be going out. The alternatives then, look, Latis era containing the, the slatinone component, the SDHI component is a very, very good rust active. Um, and, and you'd have to be looking at those type of rust actives for that application. There is going to be a bit of compromise in that. Look, if we're chasing rust early, as Philip says, there is going to be a knock-on in terms of septoria control. And that's something that we do have to, to, to be aware of in that those azoles that we're going to have to use for get really on top of active rust, um, they are still a backbone of septoria control. So if we're, if we're impacting those early on, then we may anticipate some impact on septoria control later on. And that's where we'll have to tailor that program to that. Okay, thanks, Stephen. So look, the message is if, if rust is a threat, you, you just got to deal with it. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, yeah. and that's, yeah. that's reality. That's, that's the reality, Sajul. Uh, Shay, if I can turn to you, Shay, just on, on the winter barley, we saw Mark Trimble there in Kildalton and he made the comment there, I think it was Infinity. He was seeing a bit of rink on it. And I, I, I know that Cassie and, and, and Pixel probably are, are, are there's rink on those as well. In terms of disease control program, Shay, um, and based on the crops you've seen this year, what, what, what would you be advising people? Yeah, again, Kieran, you're right. In terms of it's a little bit similar to what Stephen is describing in the wheat, in that the first protocol is to know what variety you're dealing with, okay? So the disease profile of, of the different varieties does does play a part in your in your in your disease control program and your strategy and again location will also do that as well so as you mentioned cassia there it is probably one of the dirtier varieties in terms of rinkosporium so in the south shall we take it that guys probably have already had to spray cassia already to get get on top of rinkosporium to make sure it doesn't take out tiller so that kind of tillering spray that um, that Mark talked about earlier on, that's something that a lot of guys in the South probably have done already at this stage, seeing that crops are now heading for growth stage 31. So on the cleaner varieties, then you're probably looking at, you know, maybe a two spread strategy there, especially in the North and Northeast, um, where you don't tend to get that early pressure from, from disease. And certainly on some of the cleaner varieties, some of the hybrids and that, uh, an application of a, an azole and a strawberry and SDHI at 31, 32, followed by your second application in around uh, the, the aunts peeping, that kind of pain pro stage is probably the way I would go. But for those guys who have already sprayed an application, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to get out with two sprays now at this stage, given that it's already gone on. So they're looking at something probably 32, 33, somewhere along there, uh, maybe with that, a growth regulator spray that we kind of normally put on sometime in mid-April. They're probably going to have to do some sort of a top-up in that kind of in that period there just to try and get them out to 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 the odds peeping stage. So it's very much horses for courses, location, variety, all that plays a part into the disease strategy yeah. that you're going to formulate it's, for, it's, for it's, it's back to it's back to the same strategy of you need to walk your crop, you need to get in and see what's yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, Stephen, absolutely. We, before we finish the section, Stephen, I, I, I can't let you go without talking about the new chemistry. I suppose something that's been welcomed. Um, we certainly have uh, more artillery, I suppose, to deal with, with Septoria. I suppose my question really is, you know, how best should we use it? And maybe, dare I say, mind it, you know, going forward? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think uh, 
it was touched on there. I think um, it was touched on in terms of, look, the first thing, the first protocol would be fulpit. I think, look, we have to look at the multi-site component going in there from an anti-resistance sort of strategy, as, as Connor says, but also from a disease control aspect. So both of them sort of work side by side in that one protects the other, if you know what I mean, in terms of, look, we know that the neurochemistry, we're talking about Inatrec and we're talking about Revisol there, one being a nasal, one being a QOI, or QII, I should say. Um, they are what would be regarded as at risk to resistance development. The, the other component then, your full bit is a multi-site. It isn't at such a high level of risk from resistance development. It doesn't have the same level of efficacy as the other two. But because we've got both of those there going together, we, we can sort of manage our balanced resistance and balanced disease control. And that's really the critical crux of it. The second aspect then, of course, is going to be using these when they're required. Look, if there, if septoria is not going to be an issue, then look, they're not going to be required. We can, we can. I, I wouldn't say we take it as a given that septoria is always going to be an issue in Ireland, but look, our, our weather, it, it's very difficult to predict where the weather will be uh, come the end of May, um, and even then harder to predict even beyond that, um, and that's why we'd be looking at these actives as an important component. Okay. If we if we need them, we use them at the amount and the dose that is required. And, and that really gets down to the, the risk of the disease and the variety and everything, I suppose, that we talk about from an IPM aspect of it. In this next section, Kieran is joined by Veronica Nine, a Targus advisor in from Leash, and Jimmy Stables, the project advisor in the ECT Grass Weed Project, and also by Shay Phelan again. Kieran first asked Veronica about what causes resistance in broadleaf weeds and how will farmers recognize this resistance? So basically, in the case of the broadleaf weeds that we're encountering here, corn marigold, chickweed um, were mentioned, poppy as well. It's uh, ALS resistance that we're seeing. And basically, to keep it simple, um, these herbicides are designed to enter the crop or the weed and move to a targeted site uh, where they disrupt uh, uh, the plant from producing proteins. Um, so it's based a lot on physical shape. And what tends to happen is if the plant is repeatedly exposed again and again to this same chemistry, it'll start to modify itself so that it doesn't, um, it can't bind or attach and disrupt the, the, the process. Um, the problem is it's permanent. So stopping this chemical for a year or two and coming back again and hoping it'll work is, is not going to happen because it, it has, it's a permanent modification and any seeds it generates will carry this modification going forward. So it really is a case of protecting the chemistry as much as protecting the, the crop. Um, how you'd recognize it really, and I think this was mentioned in the previous place again, monitoring. So walking your crops, um, walking them before you apply herbicides is important, but following up walking after again. And if you start to see, um, you know, a very good kill rate and all of a sudden a plant that has survived, it is really a sign that this could be starting to happen. And as I said, any seeds that plant will produce will carry the same modification and resistance going forward. Okay, thanks, Veronica. Back to, you know, walking the, the crops again, the importance of it. Um, Jimmy, if I can come to you just from your experience on the ECT programme and I, I suppose particularly wild oats that we've been dealing with there, um, just maybe a, a comment on the distribution of resistant wild oats. Like, I, I, I think there's problems still relatively small, but I suppose the awareness of it or the potential of it is, is very important. Yeah, um, I suppose Wexford seems to be 
uh, one of the main areas where we're seeing resistance at the moment. Um, Ronan Byrne would have done his PhD and he would have found a bit of resistance down here and we found it here in the ECT project as well. But we've also seen it now. We've confirmed cases in Kilkenny, Cork and Kildare as well. So it's, it's I suppose it's not just confined to the southeast, maybe. Um, okay. Okay. And just if somebody does suspect resistance, you mentioned there, you know, that they can take seeds from from the suspected plants and, and send them to Oak Park. You might just, because I know you had some issues in getting some of those to grow. Maybe what's the ideal procedure there that a grower should, should look at? Yeah, I suppose it's it's um, it's getting the seeds when they're when they're sort of ripe is the main thing because we've had a lot of issues in the last couple of years with seeds coming in under ripe, and then we're trying to mature them, uh, and then sow them and they're just not germinating. So you, you really want to when the when the seed is fit to fall out of the head, basically that's what you're looking mm. for. So the seed is is very ripe, but I know that can be hard to convince lads to leave a weed there with the potential for it to set seed in the field. So you sort of really what we've done last year is now we went in and we put we put bags over it. Um, the legs of the bread bag with the with the little holes in it to let air into it because otherwise the bag will sweat and 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 the seeds will rot in it. But something like that to to catch the seeds can can be helpful as well. So we did a bit of that last year and it worked quite well for us. Okay, very good. And Jimmy, while you have the floor there, we have a question just on alternatives maybe to pinoxidants, the likes of Axial Pro, and that. Um, the question here is in relation to have it X factor. Is that a, an option preem for spring barley if someone suspects they have a resistance issue? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's uh, from what I can gather it and looking at the trial work, it seems to work quite well. The only we had a bit of it on on a couple of farms last year, just as a demonstration, and similar to maybe this year now, there's, it, it needs moisture. It needs a fine firm seabed. The seabed needs to be rolled afterwards, and it, then it needs to be applied. But it needs moisture to work. And last year we had a lack of moisture coming into you know sort of especially up around the northeast in certain places, and and there was a big effect on the efficacy of it. So yeah, it's definitely worth a look at, but make sure your conditions are right because it's it's not a cheap product. Like it's similar in cost, I think, tax of pro. So you want to make sure your conditions are right if you are going to use it. Okay, okay, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, Shay, if I could just turn to you, just um, I suppose just back to the broadleaf weeds there. Michael McCarthy mentioned chickweed uh, is probably the most common one that people have issues with the, at the moment. Carmarigold obviously would be another one there. But just in relation to chickweed, Shay, just in terms of control, again, what advice? Would you give growers uh, where they have a field that could be a substantial amount of chickweed in it? Yeah, again, it's it's about using alternative chemistry. So, as we know, there is quite a bit of distance out there. So the likes of it be as effective anymore. But in some cases, they're not as effective as they used to be. So, in those cases, what you always what you always recommend is using a mixer product. So, in the likes of Carmary Gold, you'd be looking at something like um, Galaxy. Even though the rate is, is reduced this year, and you can't you can't use the, the rates you used to be using. So something with clopyrolid, as 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 Michael mentioned, there is 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 an option there as well. So like cigarettel or something like that to, to add to that control. Likewise with chickweed, um, something like the hurler binder, those type of products, Pixaro, those those type of mixture products are are always useful when you're using them in conjunction with your sulfonylureas and those those mixes. Uh, that we tend to use will give you the best sort of broad spectrum weed control that you can possibly get and probably reduce down the risk of resistance because there's always a risk of resistance when you use the same products year in year out. In the final session, the rest of the panel was joined by Mark Plunkett, a Chagas specialist, and again by Stephen Kilday to answer some questions around trace elements and questions relating to disease control and weed control. Kieran first asked Mark Plunkett how soil type and consolidation can help combat trace element deficiencies. 
I think it's coming through on, on the webinar here this morning, um, like the importance of, of good seed beds in terms of crop establishment and especially for spring crops. Um, they're quite sensitive. They rapid they establish uh, very rapidly in that that early phase. Like there's there's three to six weeks where yield potential is laid down in terms of rooting and tillering. So absolutely, like seed bed is very important that we get you know seed beds in in good condition. You know, in in terms of plowing, sowing, and consolidation, very very important, especially with the dry conditions that we're having. You know, land has dried out a lot, you know, in the last, um, you know, two to three days, especially here in, in, in the southeast. So, again, you know, getting in, consolidating ground, retaining the moisture, you know, you know, you're, you're going to create an environment uh, in the seedbed that's going to be more conducive for the seed in terms of establishing, in terms of rooting. And, you know, especially for like some manganese, you know, root to soil contact, retaining that moisture is very, very important to meet that that early supply or that, that early demand in, in the crop. Okay, thanks, Mark. And I suppose, thankfully, seedbed conditions are good at the moment, but you're emphasizing the importance of rolling, consolidating, keeping that moisture in there. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely care because they're drying out quite quickly as we speak, like the weather, you know, um, seedbeds are, are getting dry. So, you know, consolidating, retaining that moisture, very, very important in that early establishment phase, especially for spring barley. It's quite sensitive um, okay. to, to all nutrients, you know, including minor nutrients. Okay, can I ask you one there, Mark, about building uh, trace elements in the soil? So the likes of manganese, copper, zinc, you know, I suppose, you know, most people can identify fields with deficiencies. And, you know, what, what would, I suppose, should the approach be to building trace elements in soil? And can we build trace elements in soils? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Kieran. <clears throat> um, historically, um, <clears throat> um, you know, the likes of copper, zinc, you know, we, we sprayed copper on, worked into the seedbed. In, in the form of copper sulfate or zinc sulfate, and it gave us long-term control. So maybe it's just something that has been forgot about over or in the last number of decades, but it definitely is an option where you have a site that's, you know, that's very deficient based on the soil test that you can actually build, a bit like building P's and K's, you can build the level of copper and zinc quite quite successfully. Uh, manganese is a different story, um, Kieran. Um, you know, it's difficult. It's very, very difficult to build manganese because it's just down to the nutrient. Um, if we apply, like, so say, manganese sulfate, it'll get fixed or it'll get bound in the soil very, very quickly. So, in terms of the manganese, it's very much back to seedbed. Um, you know, good seedbed conditions, and then putting manganese in, as John and uh, John Cullen have discussed um, on the video. Okay, and just as we're on manganese, I suppose, you know, it's probably the most easily identifiable deficiency and it's the one that people, you know, have ongoing problems with. Like, is there, you know, should pe what, what, I suppose, what measures should people take to address the deficiency? Like, is it, we have a question here, is wolf tracks a good idea? Is it manganese sulfate? Is it some of the organic formulations? Like, what's the best approach to take or does it vary depending on the deficiency? Yeah, look, I suppose manganese is one that there's other factors at play, you know what I mean? Soil pH, soil type, that the lighter soils, soils that have been recently limed. As I say, the current dry weather conditions that, that we're having, like if they persist, we may see manganese starting to appear on those early sown crops, you know, crops that were sowed in the last number of weeks. But I suppose it's down to history, Kieran, and, and knowing your ground. Uh, it's a bit like walking your crops, like, and I suppose it's trying to put in 
a control measure, whether it's, you know, putting it in on the fertilizer, you know, ensuring good seed bed consolidation, getting out with a foliar spray. Getting back to, I suppose, putting the manganese on in the fertilizer is that, you know what I mean, it can get fixed very, very quickly. So, you know, if, if the cold spell persists for, a, you know, a long period of time or crops are have a difficult start, I would have fear about that manganese on the fertilizer getting locked up or getting fixed in the soil. So then very much you're back to putting manganese in as, as a foliar spray, depending on the level of deficiency or, you know, deficiency in the past, how hungry is that ground for manganese. But definitely getting in early Cairden with whatever intervention is possible there, um, and doing all the steps along the way to reduce that risk on the very, very deficient sites. Okay, thanks, Mark. And I'm going to leave it at one last question. I suppose Richie spoke about sulfur. Sorry, Mark, I'm, I'm back to you again. Okay. But, uh, Richie spoke about sulfur there. And I suppose a lot of farmers know when the compound comes, you know, it tends to have sulfur in it. And then maybe they're looking at should they apply additional sulfur maybe when they're topping up with nitrogen after Maybe I saw Richie at a ton per hectare there in, in light soils in Oak Park. What's the response to sulfur overall? And I suppose my question is, can we over apply sulfur even, you know, or what's the recommendations? Yeah, yeah look, we're, we're talking, you know, 15, 20 kilos per hectare here as, as, um, on, on cereal crops. Again, and there would be maybe a little bit coming in the compound, the likes of your 10, 10, 20 or 13, 6, 20 is probably 2 or 3% and probably wouldn't be sufficient to meet the crop's full requirement. So again, you're looking at a, you know, a, a sulcan or a nitrosulfur, you know, a 4 or 5%. And again, you're putting it on uh, with your main nitrogen uh, split. Um, we can over apply. Um, I'm not sure whether the high rates are confused with uh, maybe maybe recommendations in, in, in the UK, which is based on the oxide and there's a conversion factor there. You multiply by 0.4 to bring it back to the elemental sulfur. Um, but again, you know, you see from the, the research that Richie has done there, the crop has a, a relatively low requirement. We're talking 15 to 20 kilos per hectare per year. So that's it for the Tillage Edge this week. My thanks to Kieran and all panel members for the excellent webinar. A full video of the webinar can be viewed on the Chagas Crops YouTube page. The next episode in the series of crop agronomy webinars is on Tuesday, May the 4th. Don't forget to tune in. And for more details, go to www.chagas.ie forward slash events. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, then recommend it to a friend or colleague. And as always, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more farming news and advice, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.